Will you please welcome our guest moderator from the London Evening Standard, Katie Law. Thank you very much and welcome this evening. Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to be talking to Kath Kidston in just a moment. Um, but before I do, we're going to watch a very short video um, that has been made specially to celebrate her 20 years in business. And after that, uh, Kath herself will come on stage. We'll be talking for about 45 minutes, um, which should leave us plenty of time at the end for those questions. So let's take a look at the video. gives you a tiny flavor of what's to come um, and now the moment we want to we've been waiting for is to introduce and welcome Kath Kidston herself hi there hi there well um. let's sit down and get started um, so we've had a little flavor of um, what's been happening in the last 20 years and I'm going to go over and ask you some questions bit by bit and to get you to take us all through the story a bit more slowly can you tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up and what kind of expectations your parents had of you when you were a child? God, all these memories. It's, um, you know, coming up to our 20th anniversary, I've looked back and thought, you know, when, you know, when I was a small child, I lived in the countryside and it was my sister and I living in quite an isolated place. We were out of a village on our own. So a lot of our time was spent, it felt like filling time. You know, when you were a kid, we'd be thrown out in the garden, told to come back at lunchtime. And so 
more often than not, I would either make a house, so let a laurel bush would be a house, or I'd make a shop. There was one tree in our garden that had round leaves, which were very good for money. You know, and it's like, I don't know where, because I don't come from a family of shopkeepers. I had an aunt who was very enterprising, but she ran a nightclub and various, you know, she was great, but she didn't do shops. And I don't know where the, where the shopkeeper stuff came from. Do you but have an um, idea of what, what you think your parents did expect of you and what they, what they wanted yeah. you to do? I mean, they were, they were lovely people, my parents, but they were very traditional. And in the 60s, you know, or I was born in 1958, so I'm 54. And in the 60s, obviously, I loved the Beatles, loved the Stones, all the stuff that was going on. But I lived in a sort of world where I wore a smocking dress, I had a pony, I was kind of not in at all that sort of whole trendy mm. bit of the 60s. Mm. It was like a very old-fashioned childhood. And I think my parents expected me to... My dad really encouraged me to learn, and he always gave me books to read. He was very kind of creative, imaginative person, although he worked in a bank and he worked in family things. But he always, you know, I'd read a book and then he'd give me the next book. I loved drawing and painting, and I was encouraged to be creative, but there was no sense of career or... You know, I didn't really go to school till I was eight. I went to this woman's house and had lessons in the morning, and then I went riding in the afternoon. So it was a very privileged little bubble that I lived in, but it wasn't remotely academic. There was, when I was about seven, I'd been at school for, you know, a couple of years, and my dad asked me to write something, and I wrote it beautifully in mirror writing, you know, back to front, and I'm incredibly left-handed, and I can write naturally, the wrong way around. And the woman who was teaching me hadn't noticed when I was copying, you know, it's a lot of learning was copying A's, B's, C's or whatever. Mm. I copied it all perfectly right to left. So I've got definitely, I was never diagnosed with dyslexia as such. I can't even say the word properly, I'm afraid. But it's, um, I've definitely got some sort of back to front thing. And I can only understand things that I can imagine. Mm. So subjects that you visualize like history, English, geography, I was okay, quite good at those kind of things, art. But if it was something like algebra, I couldn't visualize algebra. I was pretty good at fractions because I could divide a cake up in my mind and work a fraction out. Uh, and like, uh, yeah, d yes. you know, how much of the cake and it all made sense. But algebra, forget it. So you I'm quite patchy like that. You said um, you in your book and... Um, at other times that you have a very visual memory and that you see things in a very clear way. And there was a piece in the book where you describe the, uh, the way your house looked. And I wondered if we might get you just to read a little bit from that book. Okay. H have, you, have you got it there? I have. Um, it's a Dropped lovely, it I think it's very evocative um, and tells us a lot about, about what's you. What's really sad is I now need my glasses you. despite the magic of the iPad being bigger. Um, I'm also, when I was at school, I was very, very bad at reading aloud. I can read books really quickly, but reading aloud is a challenge, so I'll give it a go anyway. So I have an incredibly visual memory and can vividly recall all the colours and prints from my childhood at home, my childhood home. I can still picture my bedroom with its pale blue walls and striped rosebud curtains, the overblown chintz in our playroom and the coloured formica worktops and gloss paint. Um, 
I do. It's really strange. I, we moved out of the house I lived as a kid when I was 11, and I remember being very sad that we were moving. We were coming from sort of into a smaller house and changing our life a bit. And I remember going around and thinking, I must bottle all these memories of this place. And what I remember are all the prints in all the rooms. It's really strange. You mm. know, I can remember. And I see all the old fabric when I go to boot sales and things. And it's just in my mind. And I've got almost sort of photographic memory for colour. Mm. I can't remember my telephone number. But I can remember, you know, colour and print and all of that stuff. Mm. And so when you came to London, you came to London when you were 17, and you did all sorts of other kind of shop-related activities. I mean, tell us a little bit about what, what happened next, um, finding yourself in London and what, what okay. the mood was like. So just, you know, I've come from, I'd had this sort of education where I was sent to really pretty rubbish boarding schools. It's like it's a traditional posh kid's education, but very uninspiring. Mm really learning and creatively. And when I left school, I couldn't understand why people would go to college or university. I thought, if it's the same as school, it's just more exams, more boredom, really. And when I could have fun, I could go and work in a shop that's much more interesting and creative. And so, you know, I could earn, in those days, it was 100 pounds working in a shop. I could rearrange the window. I could play with the till. It was heaven, you know, and, and so why not? And mm. I did, uh, in between doing shop work, I walked dogs, I did people's ironing, I worked in the science museum, I did, I mean, such a crazy list of jobs, because I always had to earn money. By that age, I had to become independent. I have to say, when I left school and came to London, I had to earn a living. And I, I'm really grateful for that fact, that having been very spoiled as a child and lived in this bubble, mm. I then had to actually work and get on with things. Mm. But I didn't, I began a lot of ideas, you know, I was always sort of, you know, half my childhood. I always made a lot of things when I was a kid. I obviously loved Blue Peter, all that kind of stuff. And so I always had ideas, like I wanted to make some shirts out of old Airtex fabric. And I remember buying the roll of Airtex from the wholesaler and finding the shirt manufacturer and getting a sample made and then not really having the confidence to take the idea further. It was always, and I remember uh, inventing things. Mm. You know, I invented an iron that go, would go to sleep if you leave it on. Maybe Apple could make that for us. So you can, you know, when you're in your office and you check your iron is um, on or off. And I invented, um, I don't know, the idea, which is quite like Benetton, of having a shop with different colored T-shirts and trousers and things that all matched. But I was always basically thinking of things. Mm. but never sure what to do. And then I decided that the thing I would really like to do, thinking of all the prints and bits, I've always loved interiors and stuff. And so I, I decided I wanted to become an interior designer. And it took me at least year, 18 months. I found a job working for Nikki Haslam, who's still working today in very kind of mm. traditional, but celebrity kind of decorated, yes. traditional decorating. And that was when work really began to interesting and I thought god this is like so much nicer than just sort of drifting into other jobs and things it was a real change change for me to kind of think maybe I could be good at something and then when you were working for him around that time um, you were leafing through a magazine one day and you came across a picture tell us about You've, you came across a photograph and you've described it as your eureka moment. That was um, kind We've got, you've got pictures there. That, funny enough, what happened was I worked for Nikki and I worked there for three or four years. 
and he was really good to me. It was a really interesting, really, really good period. And from that, I had the confidence to start a business with a friend. I didn't dare do something on my own, but I worked with a with a girlfriend and I ran an interior design business and a shop with all these curtain ends and bits and it was in the early 90s it was very different you know 92 people had swags and tails and all these kind of very flouncy decoration and it wasn't really that but it was I was designing curtains I remember by the end of it thinking I wish someone would just ask for a roller blind this has got too kind of fussy for me the whole thing but I was in the interior I had this partnership for five years and I was thinking it's really time to do my own thing and what was what was it going to be and I was I had hoarded a lot of vintage stuff before it was kind of called vintage it was just kind of charity shop stuff I'd always bought dresses in vintage stores and customized things when I was a teenager you know all those days of kind of mm. buying things in places like Kensington Market and doing them and so I was thinking, what can I do, which is a move on in decorating and less fussy. But as I kind of wanted a, a posh junk shop. And I thought I've got a lot of friends who are moving into their own homes or starting families and they don't have a lot of money. And you could go to Habitat, you could go to Conrad. And there wasn't Ikea. I don't think Ikea was in England then. But, and, and there was very posh brown antiques and traditional things. And when I saw the picture of the old-fashioned bathroom it was something very edited and simple compared to what was out there mm. but I could imagine putting my modern table into that room so I could think I'd like to be able to buy my my habitat table mix it with an old bath maybe that funny old flower pot I bought in a vintage store and the curtains could be old you know the textiles <coughs> were always old in those days and I, what I loved was the way they'd put the print around the side of the bath rather than on the wall I kind of like a little bit of eccentricity in taste. It's not interesting if it's safe, good taste to me. And you also said, I remember that um, you would be walking along the street and there'd be, it was very much the time when pi strip pine was fashionable. Yeah, it so was. You, you'd see the, the old cupboards with perhaps an old glossy paint. Exactly. They were all ready to be dipped into the acid baths. I remember that period very, very clearly. Yeah. It was fashionable to just dip everything into acid and strip it back. But you were one of the few people who actually saw the, the, the glory in the, in the gloss yeah. paint. And there was this great house clearance shop near where I lived. And I had a dog and I'd walk the dog in the morning or the evening plus Tony's shop. Um, great expectations yes. <laughs> and um, he had you know like beautiful wardrobes and they'd always take a piece off to show the pine which would ruin it you know and so I'd get him to keep the pieces for me and not strip the paint off my flat got full of stock waiting for this moment when I was going to open the store so when I started I had the sort of concept for Kath Kidston it was to buy very simple very nice plain useful things that you could mix up with old stuff, new stuff, but it was kind of, I was inspired by my childhood. I was inspired by all the Swedish decorating and the lovely colors and things that were happening and by the kind of idea of mixing modern things with new things and keeping things quite plain where the print could stand out, mm. you know, like a plain wall with printed curtains or, um, but what was incredible was you could go to these car boot sales and I would go and I had a very old estate car, I would fill right to you had to pack it really carefully because you could buy so much stuff so i would go and buy everything have to take it home and wash it all and you know do whatever was needed clear things out 
I remember buying a laundry basket and I didn't check it properly. And I put it into the store and I opened and this woman came round and she was looking round and she lifted the lid of the laundry basket and then ran out the shop, you know, with putting a face and it had someone's washing in the <laughs> bottom. <laughs> it was like so disgusting. <laughs> but it was, that's what I was dealing with, you know, like house clearance stuff, really. Yeah. And so you opened the first shop in, in 1993, and as well as all these um, laundry baskets, you were beginning to have a, the germ of an idea for ma making, your own, making your own things. And at one point, you went, I think, to Czechoslovakia to, to get some gingham fabric. Yeah. And um, you, you really um, pu pulled off more than you could chew, yeah. didn't you, there? It was the first, oh. first big... I mean, what okay. I'd say is I had a business plan, and the business plan was four pages. You know, I like to know that I've got more money coming in than out. There's certain parameters are really important to me, really strong business kind of boundaries. And I knew that I couldn't have too much debt because it would just make me stressed and unhappy. So when I started the business, I was running an interior design business to pay the rent. And so I had my office downstairs, and I worked on interior design. And then I had my cousin working in the shop, doing all the sales and things. And I had a plan to buy. I bought, I went to Czechoslovakia and I found this wonderful gingham rose fabric. And my curtain maker was Czechoslovakian. So Eva contacted the factory that made it. And I was going to originally order rolls of fabric that I would sell to the interior design trade. I hadn't planned to make products and things. So I ordered it all. And we were waiting one day, and I, I'd said to Eva, can you get a price for me if I wanted some made-in bed linen? And so she asked, and it was too expensive, and I said, no, I'll we'll just order the fabric. And this giant container, this lorry, came into the shop in Clarendon Cross, quite a small street, and they went, oh, we've got the pallet of the um, fabric for you. It was raining, and this giant pallet came off, and they'd made all the fabric into children's duvet covers and pillowcases. So I was like suddenly a duvet heiress, but no fabric to sell. It's like, and a bank manager saying, you know, can you tell us your next monthly cash flow? So I had to make all you the... You turned it around, I was going to say. Yeah, but you said, okay, so what are we going to make the fabric out of? So ironing board covers, aprons, peg bags, whatever it was. And the that, of course, was where the press were much more interested in product than fabric. And it really kick-started the business. But if you said, you know, to someone starting up, do you stick to your business plan? You know, you try to, but you also, I think, you have to be enterprising and innovate because bad things happen, the wrong thing happens. And actually, at the time, I really didn't know what to do. I thought, this is a disaster. This is going to be the end. Mm. And it it's was like, actually it's just really so just how lucky was that? You know, it's like, yeah. that's how, it, how many, yes. many yes. times things like that happen, and you have to think, what are we going to do? Yes, that was amazing. Um, no, um, so you, when you, um, you started that and you developed that, and then um, you very soon after that, you know, you were going full, full throttle. You, just, you became ill. Um, you had breast cancer yeah. when you were 37, and then you discovered that you were unable to have children. Um, either of those things really massive um, in any, for anybody, but two together must have had yeah. quite a significant impact on your attitude towards your business and t on your lifestyle. Yeah. How, how do you think that did affect um, what was going on at the yeah. time in terms of the business and how it's perhaps its outcome has followed? Yeah, yeah no, it did. I mean, obviously, it's a huge thing to go through. And everything's in context. I mean, my own personal experience of it was 
it was a very it, it was a very difficult thing mm. particularly the children thing which is something i think if anyone shared the same experience it's something that actually work was very healing to be busy and to do things it's filled a gap which was very fortunate that i had that and i think without the work it would be much harder and the cancer thing, you know, I remember really clearly, I was very fortunate with it. I'd had a very bad experience seeing both my parents died of cancer quite young. So I was very lucky. For me, it felt I could be treated and that was an amazing thing. But I was working incredibly hard before I got ill. And when you're working Sundays, weekends, really not giving oneself space. It's, I think one of the hardest things in business, if you run your own business, I'm sure anyone else would relate to this, is where you draw the line between mm. work and home and you're always thinking about it. And actually I thrive on it, but there's got to be some boundaries. So I thought after I'd had the cancer, I'd just be drinking green tea and doing yoga. And I did do yoga for quite a long time and I try and do things that are healthy for me. And I change my eating habits, stuff like that. But I think it helped me to make a decision where I've been running an interior design business as well as the, um, the store. I just thought, you know what? I'm going to take the risk. And if I go bankrupt, it's not going to be as bad as the experience I've just had. Mm. The biggest fear as a business startup is normally financial. For me, it was financial. So I thought, I'm going to stop the decorating, concentrate on the product as a result of that experience. And of course, the business was able to take off because I put the attention on it. Mm -hmm. But I didn't dare take that risk before because I'm quite a financial coward, mm. actually. And how, um, in terms of the development of the business and the products, what would you say your core aesthetic is and how... How were you able to keep the products relevant? I mean, what you might have been doing... I mean, in fact, the ironing board continues to be yeah. a huge bestseller, but there have been a, an evolution of, of products, products along the way, so that, it, yeah. you know, with, as with Apple now. Yeah. How, 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 how would you chart that? And what It's kind of say? two ways, because for me, anything we need to do needs to be practical. You know, I'm interested in things that I can use in an everyday way, and things that are sort of, I want, I want, I like, I, I find it interesting. Thi when I first thought of the business and I thought of making, I had a small flat and I had this grey covered ironing board on the back of the door. And I thought, why can't an ironing board look nice? If I'm doing my ironing, I'd prefer it to look nice and also be thick and padded and good quality and all of that. So that was an interesting idea to me, to mix things up. And I don't want to just take, like, I like, for example, taking an old print that might, might remind me of something like a sofa at home or home <laughs> furnishings and putting that onto a bag. It's like kind mm. of mixing the use of stuff. And the product range, you know, I mean, to me, a lot of it's what we haven't done. Like, we're asked to do men's underpants, and I don't think we should really make men d men's underpants. Maybe, you know, it'd be yes. fine, but it's like what's relevant to what we do. There's a list, we're, so many things we're asked to do that we say things no you to. Don't do. Yeah. And then some things I really, you know, when we designed our tents, for example, I thought if you go to a festival and you see these sea of tents of all how maybe you've had a late night, you've had a nice time, how do you find your tent? It's quite good that it's a print because it stands out. It really you know, stands like out. And I think in fact there is a picture We've got the picture of the, um, um, cat, the, the original glamping. Yes, really. there's the picture. Yeah, yes. sorry. I was, and then looking back at the sort of product evolution with that picture of I've got my um, you know, product 
thing here, obviously, with Apple. But I've got, when, I, when we started out, my first computer was a little black and white Apple Mac Classic. Cost very expensive in those days. It was 1,500 quid for my computer and um, black and white little thing, which we still got at can home. We go back on the, the pictures yeah. as well, so that we can see yeah. the... the, the um it was no, the computer it, yes. before that, because I had a tiny little black one in my great black and white one in my office. Then I invested in that one, and I was so proud of it. I wanted to make a take on, you know, those old, <laughs> many of you won't remember, but kitchen mixers used to have, you know, or sewing yes. machines had covers. And I thought, well, the computer really deserves a cover. It's like, su it was a shrine to my kind of thing. And of course now it's like a cover for, you know, everyone in the office has the iPhones around. You want to find your own. You want your own print to stand out. It mm. makes sense in my handbag to have something I can see. So what interests me is making things that are relevant. So the products evolve with what <laughs> makes sense today. Mm. I mean, we had a big debate in the office recently, and I said we shouldn't make egg cozies anymore. We were going through our range, and I said, do we really use an egg cozy? I can see the point of a tea cozy, because if you make a huge pot of tea for friends, then it stays warm on the table. That seems to be sensible. But do we have a do we want to use an egg cozy? I don't know. I don't think so anymore. And that's so I don't yes. find it so... And I think it's really good to discard and move on and think about what is Do relevant. You've kept doing that in quite a, in, in, in a purposeful way. And um, in terms of business, I think um, I'm really interested in how you've kept on top of it. And really, if you were starting again, you know, what advice would you give anyone, you know, in terms of how to either go with your gut feeling or take risks or not take risks because you've, you've managed really very well to keep, you know, in, a, in, a, in a real sense, to sort of keep on top of it, um, having had setbacks here and there. But wha what advice would you mm -hmm. give to people who are thinking about it? I, th it's, I think everyone's own, everyone's sort of perspective is so different. For me, we talked a little earlier about how much financial risk do you feel comfortable taking? And I think some people are able to borrow a lot in risk and are really comfortable with that. And it's their choice. And it's like, what is right for you is really important. I, when I started my shop, I didn't know anyone in retail. And I didn't know who to ask. And actually, there were a lot of people around, but I didn't know. And I really did have to learn by a lot of mistakes. And so I think asking people, and there is advice out there, not being afraid to ask. Mm. And then I only learned once the business had been going for a while, and we got the first, I was determined that in order to the let the business grow, I would share bits of it, because I thought if I try and hold on to the company all for myself, it will never grow, because I don't have the skills to grow it beyond a certain size, because I really don't think I do. I'm a creative person. I actually really enjoy the business aspect, and I like the branding aspect and all of that. But I needed someone to help me with license deals, negotiation. I'm a very bad negotiator. I like, you know, I'm hopeless at things like that. So I need, you have to work out the bits that you're good at and you enjoy and the bits that you're bad at, try and get help with that. And normally it is the stuff that you like that you're good at, isn't it? Mm. Mm. And it's having the mm. confidence to make those decisions. I mean, I think we've been helped by bringing people, I was really helped by bringing people in and the first, CEO I had, it didn't work. And actually, that made me realize I knew a lot more about the business than I had I realized. Realize, yes. And I also knew I was a bit like a lioness with my cubs. I was going to fight. And I still, to this day, 
feel really passionately about protecting the brand and doing things that I think reflect the brand values. You know, and that sort of thing's really important. I was going to say, you went at one stage, you, you, you went into America, didn't you? And yeah. you had this absolutely gigantic premises, which in your book you say, sort of even then yeah, at the time, it sort of felt wrong. Yeah. And that you were ma able to pull back and not, not to have put all your eggs into an American basket. But um, it was, I mean, it's, this is very hard. I, got, I, I thought I got to the stage where I must bring people in to help. And then I thought, I'd, I'd done. I'd worked as a consultant on some big PLC design businesses and I'd seen the real the challenge founders have in handing over business to experts. So you'd see a founder with a CEO and they'd be fighting and it would be very difficult. So when I brought people in, I had this... I thought, I must let these people make, make the decisions and the choices. And I didn't speak up when I didn't feel comfortable about things. And some of it, I think, is right. And some of it's, it's where do you find the balance? Mm. And actually, when it went wrong, the bank said it's not working. You know, I didn't have to say it. And having grown the business very steadily for 10 years, suddenly the profits went down. You know, they wanted me to make wintry collections that were very dark. And it doesn't suit our range, for example. Mm. So I think it taught me to actually trust my gut Share the d business decisions, but discuss it with people. Don't just let them do everything. Mm. So it's a balance of how do you work. And I'm very lucky now. I've got a CEO who is passionate about brand. And it's the most exciting thing to talk to someone about. He, he loves the heritage of the business. And he's always asking questions and involving me. But he makes decisions I couldn't possibly make. Mm. And it's a fantastic thing to share with someone. It's so exciting to work with other people and get that balance. And I think that's what's helped us, allowing people in, mm. even though it's been in fits and starts and it isn't always the right thing, but it's... Mm. And you're, you're, you remain the creative director, even yeah. though you're not, you don't own the whole business any longer. Exactly. Um, but I think we all really want to know, um, on a, almost on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, how much time you, do you spend designing or choosing or um. putting your fingerprint on everything? Um, you're still, are you still quite involved? And, and is, it, is that yeah. sometimes quite difficult to stand back and let go of your, of your child, as it it's were? It's kind of the hardest thing, because I still work five days a week. You know, I'm still in the office every day, and I have a, a design team. There's been lots of people I've worked with for a long time, so it's like family doing all of that. I think, you know, we, we, I make jokes with our investors and different things about, you know, what do you want to do with the F word? Because the founder in a business is a real challenge for people as a business grows. And to me, it's like the, the only sort of back into slightly sort of simplistic visual terms, you know, from where I started. I see the business as like my child that's growing up and it's now 20 years old. And its behavior is really actually quite like a 20-year-old. It's sort of leaving home, but it mm. still needs advice. It's independent, but it's still quite hopeless in some areas. You know, it's that thing. And I want the business to grow. You know, I have, I'm very lucky to have a stepdaughter, and she's becoming independent. And I don't ring her every day on purpose. And if she doesn't call us, she's out you know, having a nice time, yes. that's really good. So ultimately, I want the business to be completely independent of me, but want to be on good terms with me. I suppose you end up in the grandparent situation, mm. but I'd like to always be involved in it. And, and every year goes by, other areas get handed over. So I do, you know, I don't 
work on certain categories I used to. I used to do all the photo shoots and do all the styling. I did everything. I don't do that. There's lots of bits that gradually mm. hand over. But I'm still passionately involved in the, the range and the, the ideas and all of that bit. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And um, do you, do you um, think about, you know, the, the favourite products and, and, you know, things that you think? I mean, you seem to have, when we've talked before about, uh, you know, it having a big, big future um, and going off in all sorts of other directions and more expansion and so on, but in a way that is going to be, it continue to be quite organic in a good way. There are lots yeah. of places in the world that, that there aren't Kath Kidston shops. How do you see its future? I mean, we have, we have an incredible... It's, it, what I'm really proud of of the business is we sell to such a wide age group of people and we sell to many nationalities. It feels like it's not kind of... Although it's, I, I think it's a very English brand, what we do, but there's something that really... I'm always amazed that when I go to Asia, where I go quite a lot, there's such a connection with all the kind of... I think that... I, I like working... My work is based on tradition, working with traditional things and trying to make them contemporary. There's a lot of other designers who work in that way, which seem, that seems to resonate with um, sort of a more global market. Mm. It's not just a sort of, you English know, it's a combination of that. And I think the product categories come and go, like for the moment, for example, our children's wear is growing organically. There's a big call for special children's stuff. The bags have grown. There's now a whole kind of thing of... Our home business is developing, we're adding more things. Do we, you know, so things ebb and flow with product range and stuff like that. But I think with the help of people like my CEO, going more global is really exciting. That's really interesting. Mm. And mm. then sort of, you know, evolving the product. There's so many techniques and things. I've got a great guy who's worked with us, who's come to join us recently, who knows all about washes and finishes. And we want, I'm itching to kind of like take some of our prints and, and and put new finishes, new bits. I mean, there's so many ways of working with classics and stuff like that. And all the, all the old prints now, you know, it's reinventing something, like taking like my little Stanley dog print and, and maybe do you take it into embroidery? Do you take it into, um, you know, hard phone cases? Yes. There's, it, there's endless permutations. It's like never ending. So it amazes me. It's really the hard thing is making the choices and staying focused. You know, not going off track onto too mm. many different things at once, mm. and it's it's um it's really it's it is really hard, and also not following trends, but just doing things that we really believe in and like, and not just because, you know, there's a, a sort of mainstream thing. It doesn't mean we have to be doing that. We do our own thing. That's what's interesting. Yes, I yes. think. Yes, um. it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I think now. Um, if there's any questions that any of you have, I think any more things you'd like to ask. Hi, Kath. Oh. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Kath. Sorry. Hello. Um, of all the lovely patterns that you've designed, is there one that's a particular favourite of yours and why? It's, um, it's usually the one we're working on at the moment because that's the one I'm thinking about. We're just, um, I'm just starting now working on autumn, winter 14, so that's good. But I think the very first rose print, the... The initial rose print, for me, is the one that I probably, if I had to choose one, one of all of them, at the end of the day, it was just paring something down. Very simple, but it epitomizes what we do. So I think the rose bouquet of the, of the first one that I made on wallpaper is probably sentimentally my favorite, <laughs> as it was the first. 
Um, thank you. Thank you. And then um, four more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think your prints make me feel really happy. Do you think? That, well, that it's, we have a big, you should see in our office at the moment, if you walk in, we've got a giant knitted banner. And I think there's tea bags as well. You see, when you came in the yes. office, there's a thing saying, brighten up your day, which we pinned up for the design team saying, whatever we're doing for the range, does it brighten up your day? And it's about, to me, it's, it's part of the ethos of the brand that I like things that are cheerful. I like things, not relentlessly cheerful, but I like things that have a spirit to them that feel, wa feel warm and friendly. So it's very nice if you think that. And it's, and it's the best customer feedback for me that we can have is, does it sort of, does it resonate? Does it, does it make you feel cheerful? That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I was also going to say, actually, that it's not just the flowers. I mean, I think what's lovely is that there are the stripes and the spots and all the other patterns yeah. and the cowboys and, yeah. you know, that feed really well in with the flowers, too. Yeah, I love novelty prints. I think ever since I was a child, I loved all this what, sort of scenic prints and different things. And I used to go to America a lot um, in the early days of the business. And that's where I, when I first did the cowboys, I liked doing cowboys and roses together. I think there's a whole thing I'd seen Top of the Pops or something, and it had guns and roses. Yes. So I thought, okay, we're going to go cowboys and roses. It feels like, how does it feel right for us? And that cowboy print is still around, but I like mixing it with things, really. Yes, yes. yes. Are there any more? Uh, right at the back there. there, yes. Hi, Kath. Um, it was just stemming from, really, what you were saying about students and um, sewing nowadays and how it is becoming such a trend. In fact, my sister's um, in second year, now, well, going into second year at, at university, and she was actually born in 93, and she wants to do <laughs> she's always wanted to do interior design. Now, unfortunately, she couldn't be here tonight, but in terms of her getting to grips with different skills and different attributes, uh, well, all the different attributes of textiles, if there was one piece of advice that you could give to someone who's just about to set set sail on the road that you you did what would that be I think um I think it's if she's at college she's going to get fantastic training and actually what's really interesting now is to have the the modern you know CAD training technical training that you need in a commercial marketplace because <laughs> all the creative stuff of actual hand doing and all those kind of bits, the skills she'll either have or learn or be able to pick up but getting that training like I can't do my own design work on the computer because I've never trained for CAD. So some poor person has to do that and say, can we add this or do that? But to get the qualifications, that's what I wish I'd done. I wish I'd been to and learnt, you know, um, textiles. But if she loves it, to get as much work experience in different areas and just keep at it and be prepared to keep at it is, is what I would say. Thank you. Okay, we're afraid we've only got room, uh, time for one more question, I think. Okay, um, for anyone who's starting out in retail, what do you think is the most important thing? Is it to be true to your brand and who you are and the ideas, or is how important is it to understand what your customers really want? I would say of the two, you have to be true to your brand, but then make sure there is a commercial marketplace for it. That makes sense. Because if you follow what customers want, but it depends what you're doing, I guess. You know, if you're... I think you always have to be true to your brand. But if, if you're 
making a very commercial product that's solely about commerce, then it's probably you have to be true to, you have to work out what the customers need. You know, it's a server in that kind of way. But if you're doing a more, if I was doing my own shop again, I would definitely say be true to the brand. Because it took me a long time of, for example, when I um, marked product up in the early days, I only marked up as much as I thought the customers would be able to afford to pay for things or would want to pay, rather than looking at my profit. Because I thought it's got to be a friendly product at a friendly price. It was all about that brand thing rather than business, you know. But the t you do need both. But I think being true to the brand has always got to come first. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm. I think that's that's uh, um, the end of the end of the questions. I'm afraid, but I'm sure you'll all um, join me in saying thank you so so much to Kath for talking this well, evening. Thank you. And really enjoyed it and really learned a lot about the business. And um, thank you so so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming along. Yeah. Thanks very much.